Hi, my name is Chris, and the Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 20, 1 through 2 and 17. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do not desire your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox, donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Larissa. The New Testament reading is found in James 1, 13 through 15. No one who is tested should say, God is tempting me. This is because God is not tempted by any form of evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Everyone is tempted by their own cravings. They are lured away and enticed by them. Once those, cravings, <clears throat> once those cravings conceive, they give birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Tom. And if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 15, verses 16 through 20. Jesus said, don't you understand yet? Don't you know that everything that goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what goes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And that's what contaminates a person in God's sight. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual sins, thefts, false testimonies, and insults. These contaminate a person in God's sight, but eating without washing hands doesn't contaminate in God's sight. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you and ask that you would continue to speak. That you are the God who speaks to us through your spirit and through your word. And we pray that as we gather together and we look at your text, these words that you've spoken, the words that you've given to us as your great gift to your people, would you speak to us about who you are, who we are as your people, and how you long for us to live. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you this morning. It's a little cooler here in Palmer today, a little bit of a break from the uh, weather. My name is Jason Jackson, one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. When I was a kid, my dad collected toy tractors, like little John Deere, Massey Ferguson, Case International toy tractors. Uh, and he collected them, and then in our basement, like we had shelves and on every wall almost just covered with toy tractors. Uh, he not only collected them, but he also repaired them and remodeled them and restored them for all of his friends. But in the middle of this collection of toy tractors, there was a statement that could have stood out in the midst of it all. And it said this, it said, he who dies with the most toys wins. What they win, I'm not sure <laughs> at this point. What they do with those winnings, how they enjoy that at that point, I think it's a bigger issue for those who have to figure out something to do with all of those toys after the person dies. But it was, this was the statement, he who dies with the most toys wins. And now for all of us in here, there's probably nobody in the room that thinks, you know what, my life would somehow be complete if I just had more John Deere tractors, if I just had more of them for the wall. And yet, we live in a time and a space and we find ourselves continually sort of thinking, if I had the most of something, if I had more of something, if I had the newest, the best, the coolest, then somehow I'll win. 
I'll arrive, I'll have some sort of success, I'll, I'll know something to be true about me. At that point, I will have reached this pinnacle. At that point, I will have peace. At that point, and so I just need more of this. I just need the best of this. I just need something different, something more than what I have. And yet what we find to be painfully true is those words that are echoed in that song that Jenny Lynn sang in The Greatest Showman, it's really never enough. It's never enough. We're in the middle, we're actually not in the middle, we're in the very last week of our series, our summer series through the Ten Commandments. And I have to admit, I'm a little bit sad. This has been a really, really fun sermon series. We're getting ready to start one on Colossians uh, next week that'll take us through the majority of the fall. But we've been looking at these 10 words, these 10 commandments that God gave to Israel and talking through each of them. And yet we've been coming at it from a very particular place of saying we wanted to throughout this sermon series to sort of reframe what we think these words are. Because a lot of times we think about the Ten Commandments and we think they're this set maybe of expired instructions or there are these arbitrary rules that God just sort of like dropped on his people at some point. And yet we've discovered as we've looked at these that the Ten Commandments are not that. They're actually so much more that we've continually said throughout the series these three things. That first of all, the Ten Commandments are grounded in God's gracious deliverance. They were not given to Israel while they were in Egypt so they might keep these things and then be saved. But instead, they were given to a people who'd already been set free. They were given to a people who'd already been saved in order to teach them how to live free and full lives, to teach them what it meant to be fully human, fully alive, to live in the good land that God had given them in right relationship with God, right relationship with other people, to live differently than they had lived in Egypt and that those who lived around them. So they're intended then really to protect this God-given freedom that God has delivered and God has rescued, and now he's teaching his people how to live free lives. And as such then, they actually reveal God's character and our calling. That as we look at these 10 words, they actually teach us and show us something that's true about who God is. And they show, they show us something true about us and what it means for us to live the best possible kind of life. And so we have these 10 words and we've been walking through them. We saw that the first four words really address what it means for God's people to have a right relationship with God. That the first commandments really are about loving God. They deal with the things of worship in the community of God's people. And then we turn the page and we look in the next six and they really begin to deal with our relationship with other people. They move from love of God to love of neighbor, move from worship to ethics, to talk about what kind of life should this community live together. And today, then, we're concluding with the 10th and final commandment, and it reads this. It says, do not desire, or in some translations, do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not desire and try to take your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. As we think about this, this is actually kind of a pretty unique command. Then when we compare it to the other ones, we're not talking about God saying, do not do this action. 
And we're not necessarily saying, hey, God, God's saying, hey, do not speak these words or do not speak in this way. But instead, the 10th commandment is actually going inside. It's talking about desires and motives, things that happen on the inside of a person, things that happen in our hearts. And this, the commandment's not talking about desire in general. It's specifically talking about a misdirected desire. It's talking about what the, the scriptures call coveting. Coveting really is the obsessive desire to possess something that is not yours. It's not desire in general. It's the obsessive desire to possess something that is not yours. It's this intense yearning to have something that belongs to somebody else. It's not simply like, I got to get one of those. It's I want yours. I want that. I want that thing. I want yours. It's that thing that we see really, really in part when you order a meal at a restaurant and it comes and you're like, oh, this is fantastic. And then your friend's meal comes. You're like, but I want that one. <laughs> you know, this was fine until I saw what you ordered. Why did I think I wanted a salad and not a cheeseburger? It's that feeling that kind of starts in those places. But I think in more serious cases, it's when we go to somebody's house and you start to think, oh, I want this house, not my house. Or we go and we see somebody's job or their office or their parking spot or their promotion, and we say, no, I want that. Or maybe in some really plate, some, some hard places in our life, we spend time with somebody else's kids, and we think, oh, I wish my kids were like that. And something happens inside of us. Or we spend time with another person, and we think, oh, I wish I had a spouse like that, like that person. It's the kind of wanting that leaves us dissatisfied with what we currently have and wanting to detach from it, wanting to sort of leave it behind and go to something else. And at its full weight, really coveting is the kind of desire that leads toward plotting, to say, oh, how can I get that? How can I have that thing that eventually actually gives birth to us taking it and in the process harming the other person and harming ourselves. This is the kind of desire that is being talked about within the commandment. Desire itself is actually not a problem. Desire itself is part of what it means to be human, that God actually placed desire inside of us. In fact, the very first time this verb shows up is in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 9, when God said that he made every tree desirable to the eyes. This idea of desire is actually something that's part of the creative design that God had for all of us. There's something about desire that's part of what it means to be human. It's part of who we are. So there's a sense that desire itself is good when we're desiring the right things. But coveting is either desiring the wrong things or even desiring the right things wrongly. Desiring the wrong things or desiring the right things wrongly. It's a yearning for something that has not been given, promised, or entrusted to us. It's wanting what God forbids or wanting what God has actually given to another person. 
It's wanting what God forbids or wanting what God has given to another person. We see this actually the second time the word gets used. The second time the word gets used is in Genesis chapter 3, when it says the woman saw that the one tree that God said do not eat from was desirable for making one wise, desirable for making one more like God, being able to determine right and wrong, good and evil, true and false for ourselves. The desire was misdirected. It was misdirected to the object that God said, do not eat from, rather than the abundance of things that God said, hey, you can eat from any of these trees. Instead, the desire was directed to the one. And we see this, of course, in the Ten Commandments, this idea of desiring the right things wrongly. In the ancient world, having a house is a good thing, right? God intends for people to live in homes. The idea of wanting or desiring a spouse is a good thing. When you're living in an agricultural community, having an ox is a very good thing to have. There's a sense that you want to desire these things as part of what life looks like in the land. But it becomes misdirected when the object becomes somebody else's house, somebody else's land, somebody else's spouse, somebody else's ox or donkey, not the one that God has entrusted to us. We begin to long for what somebody else has. I remember really feeling this feeling probably for the first time in those early adolescent, middle adolescent years, you know, junior high, junior hires in the room. I'm sorry, it does end at some point. It will not last forever. But I remember in, in middle school sort of ages is the first time I became more aware, I think, like late elementary, early middle school, became more aware of the differences between myself and my friends. And I began to see these kind of things being really clearly defined and also responded to very differently by other people. My childhood friend, a guy who was my oldest friend kind of all throughout uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, was just the coolest kid in school. I mean, he had, just, he's a good-looking kid. He's incredibly smart. He played the drums like nobody's business. On top of that, he was an amazing artist. On top of that, he was the best athlete in the school. On top of that, he just had like a really cool sense of style. He was the funniest guy in the class and probably the nicest. You're like, like everything. He was like our school's version of Zach Morris for Saved by the Bell fans in the room. Like it was just, and for me, I was this like, I had these super thick Coke bottle glasses. I was a super late bloomer. I have no musical abilities, no artistic abilities, and I am moderately athletic at best, and that's probably a prideful statement on my part. I, I was much more like not, not even like Screech from Saved by the Bell, but like the, the anonymous kid sitting like in the booth next door at Max. Uh, at the, you know, it's just like, I, it was kind of there. And I remember just feeling numerous times like, oh, I wish. I, I wish I was somebody different. Like, I, I wish like that I was athletic. I wish that I was funny. I wish that, uh, so when you guys laugh, it's really helpful for me. Thank you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I wish this, I wish that I'm beginning to have that sort of longing and then finding that at certain places saying, okay, what are the things that I can have? And how do I get them? And really the very few things I had control over were things like clothes. 
right? And just, I remember having these numerous conversations with my mom of, it was the 90s, so you just had to have particular brands. It's like, mom, I really need some guest jeans, and I need a Mossimo t-shirt, and I need some Doc Martens on my feet. And if I just get those, and I'll be all right. I'll fit in, I'll have something that I don't feel like I currently have. So there's something that gives birth inside of us when we begin to have that longing for something that's either not right or something that's been given to somebody else. We can even say, I'm thinking about this, that coveting is the original sin. That coveting is the sin that actually gives birth to all of the others. It was the desire that led Adam and Eve to go and take from that tree. James puts it this way in our New Testament reading. It says, everyone is tempted by their own cravings. They are lured away and enticed by them. And once those cravings conceive, once coveting conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it gives birth to death. This is what makes the 10th commandment unique. Because really violating the 10th commandment lies behind violating all of the others. That violating the 10th commandment is actually what leads us to violate all of the others. This is how this works. See, when we begin to covet the divine, this leads us to begin to serve other gods. When we want something different in our experience with the divine, we can turn to other gods. See, when we're coveting control, we want things to be our way and in our time, and we want to be able to have them in our sense, it leads us to make idols of Yahweh, to try to control him, to make him fit into our plans and our purposes and our desires and our wants, and to begin to reduce him in some way that can be managed by us. Coveting power, wanting to have power in life can lead us to misuse God's name, to pull the God card on something, to bring God into a situation as a way of sort of controlling and manipulating a particular kind of situation, coveting success, wanting to have a certain sort of standard of life, a certain sort of monetary sort of aspect of things, coveting that kind of financial success or other kinds of success can lead us to break the Sabbath. A coveting independence, wanting to be our own person, wanting to be separate from everything can actually cause us, lead us to dishonor our mother and our father. That coveting justice in our way and in our terms and in our timeline can lead us to take another person's life. That coveting intimacy, longing for a kind of intimacy can lead us to commit adultery. A coveting prosperity, wanting to have more, can lead us to steal. And coveting security, wanting to protect ourselves, protect our image, protect what's ours, can lead us to lie, can lead us into falsehood. The 10th commandment lies behind the breaking of all of the others. So the question, of course, that we have to ask at this point, though, as we've asked in every sermon series so far, that when we see something like this where God says, hey, don't do this, then what is he actually inviting or encouraging us to do? If coveting displeases God, then what pleases him? What is it that pleases him in the midst of these things? And I want to suggest to you this morning, I think it's contentment. That I think the opposite of coveting 
is contentment. But contentment framed in a particular way. See, I think contentment is not resignation. I think contentment is resolve. So we oftentimes kind of think contentment in a negative way. That contentment is just giving up. It's not wanting things anymore. It's not desiring stuff. It's not trying. It's just sort of like, well, it's kind of e-orienting our way through life. It's like, oh, this, this is all I have. And just sort of resigning ourselves to something. But that's not what contentment is. Contentment is resolving to delight in and be satisfied with all that God has given us. It's recognizing that joy, true joy, is not found in having everything that we desire, but true joy is found in desiring everything that we already have. That's where true joy is found. Contentment is knowing that what we have is actually enough, and it's more than enough. It's beginning to reframe and think of things in that way. And here's how this plays out then in the Ten Commandments that I think is when we find this place of contentment with God, resolving that God is the one true God, that he is who he says he is, that he's the God who rescued us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who has given us everything, contentment with who he is, which is way more than enough, leads us to covenant loyalty, to saying, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to dance with the one who brung me this far. God, I'm hanging with you. We are staying together. See, contentment with the way that God reveals himself, that God is spirit, that he's boundless, and he can't be controlled, that God speaks, and when he speaks, it makes demands on our life, that when we recognize, we say, yes, I'm going to resolve to follow your spirit and listen to your voice, that leads us into right worship. See, it's contentment with our role, with being image bearers in the world and knowing that the whole world is not dependent upon us. The whole world is not hanging on our sort of work and our efforts, that we are not God and we are not slaves, but we are image bearers in the world, that knowing who we are leads us, uh, sorry, this is, uh, uh, knowing our role as image bearers means that we do not have to try to take more power. We do not have to try to take things that are not ours. We can bear God's image without trying to manipulate his name for our own gain. Number four, we want to have contentment with our work, with who we are, with what we do, with the gifts that we've been given, with the work that God has put in front of us, and knowing that we're content with the limitations of that, that can lead us into rest. Contentment with our dependence, knowing that we came into this world within that side of a family that we actually need other people and relationships. Contentment knowing that we need those who are older than us to speak into our lives, to be wise counsels can lead us to honor our parents and other elders in our lives. Contentment with God's justice, with the way that God wants to bring about making things right in the world can lead us to protect life. And to say, you know what, God, you value life, so I'm going to do everything I can to protect and promote it rather than take it and crush it. Contentment with our spouse or our singleness can lead us to sexual fidelity. Saying, God, I'm content. I'm designed what you've given me, this, this marriage that you've given me, this uh, singleness, this season that you've given me, or this life of singleness, and I am going to live this well in a way that honors you. Contentment with our possessions, with recognizing we have more than enough, leads us into generosity. 
say, I don't have to take, I can actually be a person that gives. And contentment with ourselves can lead us to live in the truth. We don't have to hide, we don't have to pretend, we don't have to manage our image. We can simply say, this is who God made us to be. This is who I am. A contentment can lead us into those places. So the question, of course, then is, where does this come from? How is it that we find contentment in life? Where does it come from, and how do we develop it? First and foremost, I think we have to recognize that contentment comes from God. And this is not something that we produce. We just sort of like get up in the morning and like, you know what, today, I'm just going to be content. And I'm going to muster up everything inside of me, and I'm going to say, you know what, I'm content today. That somehow this is something that we can make happen inside of us. But I think it's truly the Spirit's work in us. 2 Corinthians 9 describes contentment as God's grace or God's gift in our life. It's something that God gives us. Philippians 4, God uh, makes contentment happen for us. It's not uh, the sense that he makes contentment possible. He strengthens us to do this. Here's the verse. He says, I know the experience of being in need and of having more than enough. And I have learned the secret to being content in in any and every circumstance, whether full or hungry, whether having plenty or being poor. And what's the secret to being content? He says, I can endure all things through the power of the one who gives me strength. This is God saying he promises to strengthen us to be content, not strengthen us to win football games. Okay, there is a distinction here in how this verse is used. It's about contentment in our lives. So this is something we produce. It's something that God gives. But as with everything that we find in the scriptures, God invites us to participate. All right, we don't produce, we don't produce it, but we do participate in it. And I want to give you just three things today of how I think we participate in the growth of contentment in our lives. The first one is this, is that we repeatedly give thanks for what you have. The way that contentment grows in our lives is when we repeatedly give thanks to God for what we have. Contentment flourishes in gratitude soil. That this is the soil that it grows in. Is that when we find ourselves saying, God, thank you, for the place that you've given me to live. God, thank you for the family that you've given me. God, thank you for my friends. God, thank you for my car. God, thank you for my job. God, thank you for my personality. God, thank you for making me the way that you made me. God, thank you. God, thank you that gratitude actually causes contentment to grow in our lives. That gratitude actually fuels fidelity and affection. That when we are grateful, we find that somehow we begin to be more faithful to those things and our love for them grows. It's through gratitude that we actually fall in love with the life we have and the one who gave it to us. That when we're grateful, our love grows. Second thing I think the scriptures encourage us to do is this, is to redirect your desires to God. To recognize desire itself is a good thing. It's something that God gave us, 
but they need to continually be redirected to the one who can actually satisfy the deepest longings and desires of our heart. When we covet, we actually end up coveting things that we think are going to satisfy us. That we begin to long for things and want to take things that we think are actually going to do something inside of us. They're going to fulfill something. They're going to satisfy us. They're going to help us in some way. They're going to bring us something. But what ends up happening is they disappoint in some way. That they're never able to fully deliver on what we think that they can. Because it's ultimately only God who can satisfy those deep longings in our hearts. Augustine put it this way. He says, thou hast made us for thyself and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Isn't that beautiful? God made us for himself and our hearts really then are going to be restless until they find their rest in God and God alone. I think one of the ways that we do this, one of the ways that we redirect our desires or something that can help us do that is that ancient spiritual practice of fasting. That fasting is actually a way that we take normal everyday desires and we redirect them to God. That we take and we fast food. And as we feel hungry, we remember that what only can, really we need is the bread from heaven. That we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then we can go back into our eating life and celebrate and rejoice and say, this is something that came from God. God gave us this meal to satisfy this part inside of us, this hunger that we have, and yet we have a deeper hunger. And the deeper hunger is for the one who gave us the bread that we eat continually redirects us there. Or when we fast something like entertainment, fast Netflix for a certain period of time or whatever streaming service they use, it reminds us that eternal joy is not found in the entertaining things of this world, but eternal joy is found in the one who made it in the first place, the God who himself is abundant joy. And then we find things in this world that make us laugh, things that entertain us, things that capture our attention. We're actually supposed to take those things and say, God, thank you for making laughter. God, thank you for making arts. God, thank you for these kinds of things. They teach us about you, about beauty and about joy. And through these things, we're looking to you. And fasting them for a while can help us to redirect them. Or fasting something like social media for a period of time. It's a reminder of saying that that intimacy that we desire, that sort of significance that we desire, that desire to, to know and to be known, the desire to love and to be loved that we try to find oftentimes through all of our social networks, whatever they are, when we, when we sort of step away from that a little bit, we remember that the only intimacy that will really fully satisfy us is the intimacy that we find with Christ. And the significance we have is not something that we earn, not something we make happen, not something we sort of cultivate, but our significance is the fact that we're the adopted sons and daughters of the Most High King. And we come and we're re-reminded of those things when we take time to set them aside and redirect them to the one who's truly the source of all of those things. The third thing is for us to cultivate gratitude in our life is to remember that all he has is yours. And all he has is yours. There's this famous story in Luke chapter 15 
about two sons. We oftentimes call it the story of the prodigal son or the story of the lost son and kind of going to spot, recognizing there's this lost coin, other stories that precede it. But really, when you look at the story, it's a story about two lost kids. One of them who comes home and the one who, refu who refuses to come inside and who stays out in the field. It's a story about this younger son who says to his dad, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. And goes and he squanders it all. Goes and lives an absolutely reckless sort of life. And then at some point comes to his senses and says, you know what? It would be better for me to be a servant back in my dad's house than to live this way. And so he humbles himself and he comes back home. And the father sees him a long way off and he takes off running, throws his arms around his kid, tells his servants to go and kill the fattened calf because we're going to have a party. And he puts all the signs of sonship back on him. And this raucous party breaks out and all of a sudden you're introduced to the older son, the other kid. And he's out in the field and he is mad. He is angry about what has happened. The father comes out to him as well. He comes out and has a conversation with the older son. The older son is upset that he, the, the father has lavishly given all of this to the younger son. And they begin to have this conversation. He says this. He answered his father and said, look, I served you all of these years and I've never disobeyed your instruction, yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not even his brother, when this son of yours returned after gobbing up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And then his father said, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. See, contentment is birthed in the recognition that everything that the father has, he has given to us. Everything that the father has, he has given to us. Everything that the father has, he's given to you. You already have everything you need and more than enough because everything he has is yours. And not just everything, but he gives not just everything, but he gives himself. That he has given us himself. We see this demonstration of God's generosity that God giving everything to us no more clearly than at the cross when we see that he gives himself for our salvation, for us to know him, to be rescued from sin and death, to be adopted as his sons and daughters, to be able to come back home, to come inside and enjoy the party. And this is actually what we do every time we come to the table is that we do those three things. We come to the table, we call it the Eucharist, Eucharist means to give thanks. That we come here and we express our gratitude. That's fundamentally what we do as we come in service. We come in joy to thank God for all that he's given us. That as we come to the table, we give thanks. And not only do we do that, but we redirect our basic, even our most basic desires to Jesus. That we come hungry and we come thirsty and we're given food and we're given drink 
and we're reminded that even our most basic desires point us to Jesus. We redirect them to him. And we come and we remember that everything that he has is ours. That he invites us to come in, to sit at the table with him and enjoy all that he has to offer. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we come to you and we ask that you would make us content. You would teach us and show us the way. And we know this is not something we can produce in and of ourselves, but it's something that we want, something that we need, something we long for, and something that you desire. There's something about the resolve of delighting in what we have, of being satisfied in you, and finding you in all things that is a beautiful life that you've set before us. But would you come and do that part that we can't do? Would you begin to produce that inside of us through the work of your Holy Spirit? And would you also empower us to participate in that? Would you make us grateful people? Would you help us to continually give thanks to you for all that we have? And would you help us to redirect all of our desires back to you, the source? And would you help us to remember, to know that all you have is ours. To live in the wonder and the beauty and the joy of that reality. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.